Well, good morning. Welcome. My name is CJ. Uh, one of the pastors here at Citizens. Jared Davis let me know that my denim on denim look is called referred to as a Canadian tuxedo in his field. You guys are nodding, so some of you guys know that. That's not what I was going for. Um, glad that you're here. Uh, I want to introduce you to my friend Justin Anderson. Uh, him and I planted Redemption together almost 10 years ago. He's visiting uh, from Pasadena, so welcome and thanks. Glad you're here. Um, this morning... Regardless of who you are, where you've come from, what things you have done, what things you've left undone, God created you in his image and longs to be your father. He wants to take every broken part of your story, every painful event in your life and redeem it. He wants to adopt you into his family, name you as his beloved son, his beloved daughter, and slowly, methodically give you back the life you always longed for, a life lived close to him, a life under his protection and care, a life of fulfillment and meaning. He wants to take every image you can imagine of a good father and fulfill that. A few years ago, a Ukrainian artist named Sush published published a book called Dad by My Side. And I want to read that book to you this morning. And I want you to try, if you can, as I read this book, to listen with the heart of a child. Try to imagine when you were a kid, the things that you longed for from your dad. Dad by My Side. With dad by my side, there's nothing we can't do. He knows how to make me smile. He's not afraid to look silly. No matter how busy he is, he always makes time. This one gets me as a dad because... I often get frustrated with my kids for interrupting me, but not this dad. We love to try new things together. Eggshells in our omelets don't bother us at all. He comforts me when I'm sad. You see the little, there's a little turtle grave there, a little picture of a turtle if you can't see it. I make him feel better too. Neither of us likes it when he has to go away, but he doesn't miss a single lullaby even when he's far from home. We fill our house with special marks. He teaches me and I teach him too. We love to cuddle. He always makes space. Any parent knows that's a reality when you have kids and they sleep in your bed. They take up the whole thing. He tells the best stories. He makes every room feel cozy. He protects me from monsters under the bed. He helps me 
and I help him too. It doesn't matter what we're doing as long as we're together. With dad by my side, I can reach the stars. Now I wish for the sake of this artist that she had had a dad just like the one in her drawings and that the book is a depiction of her own experience. But sadly, if you know her story, that's not the case. Her father wasn't involved in her life when she was a kid and these pictures are birthed from a place of brokenness and sadness because of what she actually never received. Look at what she writes at the end of the book. My father and daughter series of illustrations came to me during a difficult period in my life when I felt lost and unprotected. Then I saw the father in my mind, this giant, kind, and loving protector who can make all things possible. He is deliberately big, much bigger than the figure of the little girl, his daughter, because this is how she sees him. His beard makes me think of something ancient, strong, solid. He is someone who is there just because, to love you without any reason, unconditionally, and forever. There is a longing built into every one of us for the unconditional, protective, self-sacrificing love of a father. Tragically, for many of us, our best hope for the kind of dad we deeply long for is only found in sketches on a page. And so God wants to step into that space and answer that longing. The adoption of God to us will cost him everything. It'll cost him his firstborn and only son. And I can tell you, there is no greater ache in a father's soul than the death of their child. And yet God says yes to that for us. Through adoption, God's love for us moves off the page and into reality. So that if you are a Christian... There is no place you go without dad by your side. And with him by your side, sin has no hold on you. There's no debt you have to pay. And you have a spirit, the spirit of God himself, who's there to protect you with his witness against anyone who questions your new identity as a son or a daughter. And that's what we're going to look at together in Romans 8 this morning. But before we do that, let me pray and ask God to be with us. Oh. Heavenly Father, all of us are in some way like this artist, longing for a father that far surpasses any experience we've ever had, even if we had a good dad. Lord, I'm so thankful for my dad, but he's not even nearly as good as you. I'm thankful to you, Jesus, this morning that through you, we have been invited into your family, that we can be called beloved children of the Father. God, we acknowledge and confess this morning that oftentimes we project our negative experiences of our earthly fathers onto you. We accuse you of abandoning us, of neglecting us, of withholding love and grace from us. 
And so we need the redemption of a true heavenly father. And we, so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to bear witness to us this morning, the true nature of the father. Quicken our hearts to receive him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter eight, will be in verses 12 through 17. I'll also have them on the screen. If you've been hanging out with us for the last few weeks, this is our fourth week in Romans 8, and we're going to stay in Romans 8 through the rest of this year. Last week, Adam Hillier did a great job kind of tracing the theme of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in the lives of God's people from the Old to the New Testament. As we look at the scriptures, we see that the Holy Spirit has relentlessly pursued humanity for all of history, seeking to dwell once again in the midst of his people, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, more perfectly in Jesus, and now in us, within our own hearts, because we are God's adopted children. Now, as a parent with an adopted child, I can tell you that adoption is both beautiful and tragic, There's a tension between the fact that if adoption didn't exist, if it wasn't an option in a sometimes necessary moment to secure the highest good for a child, if that that wasn't the case, I wouldn't have my son Keen. Okay, and I can't imagine my life without Keen. And yet, on the other hand, if sin had never entered the world, adoption wouldn't be necessary And that would be better for Keen. So Keen has to sort of grow up living in the constant tension of gratitude for Renee and I, but also this deep sense of loss and brokenness that he doesn't belong to his birth family the way he was meant to. In that same sense, God never meant for you and I to be estranged from him, to belong to any other parent so that he would then need to adopt us back into his family. But because of sin, that's what he did. Okay, and so we're gonna talk about adoption. We're gonna focus on adoption this morning because Paul does. And there's three things that I wanna highlight in the passage that Paul really says adoption involves, okay? The first thing is a transfer of power, okay? It involves a transfer of power. Secondly, the canceling of debt, And thirdly, the security of a witness. Okay, let's jump in and start in verse 15. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, remember that Paul is a Jewish Christian who spent most of his life studying Jewish law. But he's also a Roman citizen and really interested in Roman culture. Remember I talked about that in the first sermon. Particularly, he's interested in Rome and the different culture of Rome so that he can leverage it for the gospel. Okay, so he's speaking to both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. That's his audience. So what Paul does here is to speak about adoption in a way that both groups could understand, which is illustrated perfectly well by the use of these two words, Abba and Father. 
ABBA, not to be confused with the lame Europop group from the 70s, sorry if you like ABBA, uh, that word is the Aramaic word for father that children in Jewish households use just in everyday life. It's just a term that kids would use to refer to their dad. It was a word that expressed both intimacy and obedience to their father. And this is what God wanted for the nation of Israel. In Exodus 4.22, God says that the whole nation is like a son to him. And then over and over again in the Old Testament, he repeats this covenantal framework with their adoption through the phrase, you shall be my people and I will be your God. You're like a child to me collectively, okay? God designed people, including us, to engage in a relationship with him in those two ways, intimacy and obedience. Because of Israel's estrangement from God through their sin, they had been so removed from that reality of being like children that the idea to them of referring to God as Abba felt totally irreverent to them, that it would somehow diminish God's glory and his holiness. But Paul reminds his Jewish listeners and us that because of Jesus, because we've been adopted to God through Jesus, we can now speak to God with this kind of intimacy. It's the word Jesus used when he addressed God in the garden of Gethsemane on the night before he died. He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus models for us the way to engage God in the midst of despair. How do you speak to God? How do you engage him? Do you cry out to him in terms of intimacy with a longing for obedience and trust? In your darkest moment, do you go to the father believing that he will meet you in that dark moment? God deeply longs to hear your cries. The pain I feel over my kids' tears is so deep, and yet nothing wants me, wants to, causes me to draw nearer to them than their tears. I, I hate their pain. I wish it didn't exist, but I love to comfort them. Lately, most nights, uh, August has just had a lot of tears. She's just in a, a hard, hard season. And so as I just sort of thumb away those tears off her cheek, my skin touching her skin, assuring her, daddy loves you, baby. I'm so proud of you. You're safe. I'll always be here, right? As a dad, my heart feels like it could just burst out of my chest with love for my child. How much more how much more than that does God the Father love you and me, his kids? For his Gentile audience, Paul uses the Greek word pater for father and then speaks to 
Roman adoption law. Now, adoption in Rome was a really serious matter. In Roman culture, there was something called the patria potestas. And the patria potestas was a Roman law that declared a father's ultimate power over his family so that even their life and death were under his jurisdiction, okay? Even a grown son was still under the patria potestas until his father died. Okay, it's a little different. In, in our culture, uh, moms have most of the legal power over their kids. But in this ca- case, it was the father who had it all. And so it made the adoption process pretty involved, pretty complicated legally. There were two main steps if you wanted to adopt somebody. The first was the biological father of the child would bring copper, place it on scales, and then symbolically sell the child to the new father. And this happened three times. The first two times, the biological, biological father sold his child and then bought them back. And then on the third time, he relinquished his rights to the child and gave them over to the adoptive father. This is called the mancipatio. Okay, it's where we get our word for emancipation. After this, the adoptive father then had to present a legal case to the Roman magistrate to make it official. Okay? So Paul's listeners knew that adoption was no small matter in Roman law. And if you enter into an adoption process here in the United States, you'll see that the same is true here. Um, Renee and I can attest that is a very expensive and involved process. So what Paul does is he takes kind of three truths that were present in Roman adoption law to communicate to us the magnitude of God's reference to us as his adopted children. Okay, and so the first one is that adoption was a clear public transfer of power. The adopted son or daughter, after they were adopted, was no longer under the patria potestas of their former father, but now instead under the rule authority and protection of their new father. Okay, the same is true for us with God. Look at what Paul says in verse 14 and 15. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Okay, Paul's saying that when we were adopted by God, there is a transfer of power from our former dad, to our new dad. In 1 John 3.10, the apostle John, who was so one of Jesus' closest friends when he was on the earth, says that those who are not children of God are children of who? Satan. And then Ephesians 2.1-3, Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's pretty intense, right? to say that those who are not adopted by God under his protection, under his authority, under his governance are instead being governed by Satan, by the the prince and principalities of, of the world, the spirit of the age. What he's saying is that if you don't follow Jesus and you don't have God as your father, you are not free. And so adoption 
into God's family is great news because you were a slave in your old home. Okay, a child who experiences oppressive enslavement in their birth home is delighted to be emancipated from such a place and welcomed into their new adoptive family. People who accept God's invitation to adoption rightly see their former life under Satan this way and they rush into the arms of their new father and they never look back. They never look back and wonder what, what might have life have looked like if I would have stayed. Beloved brother, dear sister, are you looking back at your old life before Christ and wondering if it might offer you something better? Do you find yourself saying, I don't know if I like this household. I wonder if I had been happier if I had stayed. Paul says, remember, you have been adopted. It is done. Okay? The scales have been weighed. The price was far more than copper. It was God's firstborn son, and he paid it. Now, in Rome, the reason a father adopted was not to serve orphans in need of a home, but instead to serve himself if he had no heir. In our case, God didn't need an heir. He had Jesus. But he gave him up for us because he loves us, because he wants us. Don't Look back. Run into the arms of the Father. Receive this transfer of power from God. William Barclay comments on this text saying, once we were in the absolute control of our own sinful human nature, but God in his mercy has brought us into his absolute possession. The old life has no more rights over us. God has an absolute right. The second thing that occurred when someone adopted a child in Rome was the canceling of debts. Oftentimes, the adoptee was an adult who may have incurred some kind of debt. And so if they had any, it was immediately forgiven once they were adopted into their new family. And so Paul is gonna sort of riff on that a little bit because he knows his audience understands it. So he says in verse 12, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Renee and I are in a student loan forgiveness program, 
which means that after working for 10 years in the nonprofit sector, all of Renee's student loans will be forgiven, which is an amazing gift. Um, imagine several years from now, someone comes to me and says, hey, you really need to pay that loan back. And I say, well, hey, you know, they are forgiven. And the person insists, yeah, but you, know, you took out those loans, right? And so you should really pay them off, okay? Well, why, why should I pay them off? You just should, you know? I'd be like, yo, bro, like get out of my face. You know, like, <laughs> I am not listening to you. Like I'm not, I'm not paying those back. I would never do that, right? Paul says, when I sin, that's what I'm doing. I'm letting Satan convince me to pay a debt I do not owe. When I sin, I'm letting my flesh the sinful desires still present within me, retake control of my identity, tell me that I'm not God's adopted son, that I still belong to Satan, that I'm still a child of wrath. Paul says, don't fall for it. What sin has its grip on you today? Has Satan convinced you that you still owe a debt to the flesh? What if today you just decided to cancel payment on that? To repent, to turn from those ways and say, no, I belong to God. My debt is canceled. It's been paid. I owe nothing. And if you find that so difficult, cry out to the spirit who's there to lead you away from sin and death, to bear witness that you are indeed God's adopted son or adopted daughter. That's the third thing that Paul points out, the security of the witness of the spirit. The adoption process was substantiated by witnesses so that if something happened to the adoptive father, there were people who could vouch that the adopted child was the rightful heir of his estate. So no one could sort of claim, oh, they're not a biological child and so they don't, they're not an heir to it. And so both Paul's listeners, Jewish and Roman, understood this idea. We read in Deuteronomy 19.15, in Jewish law, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so Paul says that we have multiple witnesses. Verse 16 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And man, we need that witness, don't we? Our sinful flesh wants us to think we're not free. It wants us to live with the illusion that we are enslaved. It wants to bind us with shackles that don't exist. And all of us sort of 
have these voices within us, externally and internally, that question constantly our status as a child of God, right? We have voices of shame, condemnation. I was just talking to Dash this morning about this like inner judge that I have, constantly telling me you're not good enough, you need to work harder, try harder. So we have all those condemning voices and then even the voice of Satan himself. You aren't God's child. He doesn't want you. He actually doesn't even exist. This whole thing is made up. You silly child, so wounded from your past, longing for a new dad, you are so weak to be a Christian, so needy. Does that sound familiar to you? When this happens, the Spirit of God bears witness, reminding our sinful flesh, those voices, the critic and the shame, Satan, that a transfer of power has been made, that all debts have been forgiven, and that we are now fellow heirs with Christ. Notice the way Paul says this. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Okay? It's not just the spirit who speaks. He is inviting us to be the second witness. The spirit says, I will speak for you, but you must also speak for yourself, crying out, Abba, Father. So that every time we go to God in prayer and we call him Father, we are joining our spirit with the Holy Spirit in a collective witness to our own hearts that we are indeed God's beloved son, beloved daughter. This practice is essential. If you spend time with praying with Dave Ainsworth, which I get to do a lot, he always begins his prayer with what two words? Dear Father. Without fail. When I go to pray with Dave, I just, I get to hear, I know I'm going to get to hear those words spoken because Dave is there and he's going to go before God. He, Dave loves to address God as his dear and beloved dad. That's so instructive and good. And so I invite you to do that even now. Just in your heart, like deep in the recesses of your soul, would you just cry out, Abba, Father. Bear witness to your soul that you belong to God as his adopted child. Declare to your sinful flesh, I am free of you. I owe you nothing. All my debts have been paid. Breathe in the Spirit's assurance and exhale relinquishing fleshly desires. Brother and sister, that is your birthright. You are sitting on the shoulders of that big, bearded, loving father. No one can get you. Dad is by your side.
I don't get the sense that Sush has found the father she is looking for in God. It is likely that her hopes are still bound up in watercolors on eggshell textured paper. At the end of her book, she writes about this father. He is the kind of figure I hope I can be for my son and one I hope he can be for his own children someday. The burden of her dreams for a father are still sadly misplaced. The burden is on her as a present parent and on her son as a future parent. And so without, with nothing but sincere respect and love for Sush, I wish I could say to her, that simply won't work. Your human effort is every bit as two-dimensional and temporary as those illustrations. How does the father move from the pages of our imagination to flesh and blood? As God thought about it, how can I convince humanity to say yes to me as their new dad? He thought to himself, maybe if I send my son, Jesus, to be flesh and blood, to live perfectly, live sacrificially, to die a gruesome death and come back to life and power. Maybe then they will say yes to me. Paul gets specific at the end of verse 17. He says, all of this is ours. Adoption, the transfer of power, a life free from the sin that leads to fear and death, the canceling of all debts, the witness of the spirit, it says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus is the answer. The only way to be with Jesus is to join him in his death and resurrection. Jesus isn't hoping he gets an invitation to our Christmas party so that we can spend time with him, okay? He's not interested in being sort of added to our life as a supporting actor. He's inviting us to die with him that we might be raised from the dead. And so if you're someone who says, I don't really care if my sin is destroyed or that I'm free from it, or I kind of like the house I'm living in, or you think of Jesus or, or Christianity as sort of something you'd like to add to your life, and you're not really willing to suffer or join Christ in suffering for that to happen, then you probably don't want this adoption. The kinds of people that are looking for Jesus are the kind of people that are like, I'll do anything to get out of the household I'm living in now and be adopted into a new family. The good news is that to share in Christ's suffering means we will also be glorified with him. The only way to that glory is through the cross. 
And so I ask, will you say yes to that this morning? Will you let God's perfect image as a father move off the page and into reality this morning? It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what you've left undone, how broken you are. None of that matters. You have a father right there with open arms waiting for you to just run up and throw yourself in. I need you, daddy. I need you. Let me pray for us this morning. God, there's always a heavy weight in the room when we talk about you as a dad and we spend some time thinking about our own experiences with our dads. Got to pray for brothers and sisters today that maybe are triggered by a talk like this and that there's pain, that you would be comforting to them that Holy Spirit, you would move in our midst with kindness and grace and compassion. God, I confess I'm still figuring out how to receive you as my dad and can feel frustrated that I don't, I don't get to experience a physical touch that I desire from you, some of the affirmation verbally that I could want from you. I thank you that you are just patiently discipling me and, and growing me into a man that understands the love of the Father more deeply. I thank you that I can trust that you will carry that work to completion in me and in every one of us. We love you. It's in your name we pray.